Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. This is Kevin Roberts, your host of the Foundation Podcast. In this inaugural podcast this week, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Ashley Berner, an education policy professor at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Berner recently wrote a book, Pluralism in American Public Education, No One Way to School. And because of the longstanding work that all of us at the Texas Public Policy Foundation have done in education policy, particularly in introducing innovation to the public system, I was privileged to talk with Dr. Berner. Dr. Berner has spent her entire career researching ways that the public education system can be both more effective and more efficient. And I think what you will enjoy in this interview with Dr. Berner is how candid she is about some of the challenges in the system and as also as positive as she is, sort of cautiously optimistic about the solutions that she's researched. I hope you enjoy. So what we're going to do today is have a conversation about the wonderful book that our friend, Dr. Ashley Berner, has written. And I think you will enjoy particularly her responses to some of the questions that we've talked about, but you know in good TPPF fashion, we'll also go off script, ask some difficult questions, and see how you do. Does that sound fair? Fair. Okay, very good. So I've I've done a few of these, and I always make a point, and I know you think that, that everyone does this, of actually reading the book. And my You're wife, one of the few. Yes. My, my wife was joking with me this morning. She said, you just can't get the professor out of yourself. You, you have to read the book. I said, yes, I'm visiting with another historian today. So you have the distinct privilege of listening to two historians for the next six or seven hours. <laughs> Dr. Berner's the smart one. And what we're going to focus on is a beautiful concept that Dr. Berner has given a great vocabulary to. And that's what she calls educational pluralism. We're really careful, even though we're a think tank, about the academic language that we use. And one of the things that I love about Dr. Berner's book, No One Way to School, is that while she does, of course, use academic quality research and clearly has the training of a wonderful academician, she's particularly adept at explaining these concepts, this vocabulary, if you will, in a way that a suburban mom who's perfectly smart and educated but doesn't have the time to read that academic research can understand. And because we at the foundation pride ourselves even more than being a think tank and being a do tank, that is taking our research literally, walking it up to the Capitol, two blocks north of here, I'm very grateful to you, Dr. Berner, for giving us a shot in the arm. So what we're going to do is get into the book a little bit You'll have an opportunity at the end of our conversation to ask some questions of your own. And then we've reserved some time in the lobby for you to acquire a copy of the book or 10 and also meet Dr. Berner, visit with her, and maybe get your book signed. With that said, let me introduce more formally our guest. Dr. Berner, as I mentioned, is a historian. Her current position is deputy director of the Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy an assistant professor of education. She is a graduate of Davidson College and Oxford University, where she earned her doctorate in modern history. 
She's published numerous articles and book chapters on the relationship between educational structure and state funding, not only in the United States, but regarding other democratic nations. Also, a number of articles on religious education and citizenship formation, yet another priority of the foundations, and teacher preparation in different national contexts. So to say the least, if you want to know something about American education, Dr. Berner would be someone you would want to visit with. So we will begin our conversation with a general question, Dr. Berner, and that is sort of a framing question. I was mentioning to a, a colleague here that we do a lot of policy work with that in addition to your academic research, one of the things I like about your book is you have some rhetorical flourishes. And, and that's a compliment in, in a world, a policy world, where we're often using too many words to explain what we're trying to get across. And you open your book with a zinger of a sentence. It is no secret that American education leaves many students behind intellectually, civically, and morally. Why and how has that happened? Well, first of all, let me say thank you for having me here. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be in Texas. I used to live in San Antonio as a small girl. My father was at Fort Sam Houston. And those of us in education policy do look at the good things that are happening in Texas in both the public and the private sectors. Uh, thank you to the Steinhausers and to the Public Policy Institute. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So in answer to your question, my purple prose at the beginning of the book, there are several things that are quite powerful from education research about what matters for student success. And whether we're looking at domestic research, the school sector effects, or international systems, it becomes clear again and again that a strong school culture and a high quality academic curriculum have an outsized and independent effect on student outcomes, whether we're looking at test scores, college enrollment, citizenship behavior, and so on. So it's an, a high quality academic curriculum that actually builds knowledge, not only skills, and a, a strong school culture by which is meant not only behavioral markers, how many students are suspended, and so forth. But does the school have a coherent framework for life, for study, for success, for failure? How do they answer the why questions? And the way that American education has taken shape in the last 100 years, 150 years, has been to push against both of those in particular ways. Thank you very much. You identify part of the problem, which we're going to tease out over the next mm -hmm. several minutes, by emphasizing what you call three mistaken beliefs. Mm -hmm. and, and to quote you, these beliefs are first that only, these are mistaken beliefs. First, that only state schools can create good citizens. Second, that only state schools can offer equal opportunities to all children. And third, that any other arrangement is constitutionally suspect. I would say that those of us who work on education freedom initiatives in Texas would say, yes, those are mistaken <laughs> beliefs. So how do we begin to change them? I think we begin to change first by panning back and looking at the way that most democracies structure education. And to cut to the chase, most democracies don't fund only one kind of school. 
state-delivered education. Most democracies handle diverse populations differently by assuming we disagree about the big issues of life, what makes life meaningful, is there a God, and so forth. Education is not a neutral enterprise. It's laden with judgments, value judgments. And so therefore, we won't fund only one thing, we'll fund many things. So that's the first thing we do to change the conversation, is just to make, to make all of us more aware that it's not necessary to have only one kind of government-funded school. Democratic theory doesn't require it. I think also looking at the empirical record is important. So when we look at how different school sectors advance or impede citizenship behavior, and by citizenship behavior, we're normally, political scientists, are normally looking at things like not just voting, but the ability to analyze and write and speak clearly, the capacity to have tolerance, political tolerance, for those with whom we disagree, and community service and so on becomes very clear that state-delivered schools, state-delivered education does not have an inherent advantage. In fact, the advantage may lie elsewhere. And we see this around the world. We'll get into some of those examples momentarily, but I think the time has come for you to help us understand what you mean by the solution you propose. And we're grateful that you propose a solution because one of the things that we see often in the public policy arena mm -hmm. is a lot of identification of problems mm -hmm. and a lot of rhetoric, but not a lot of solutions, particularly solutions that have any chance of being passed by legislature or implemented by the relevant administrative mm -hmm. agency. So you have this concept, we'll get into some of those details, but you have this concept of educational pluralism, which each of us has touched on. Explain for us what that is and why understanding that will lead us to policy solutions. Mm -hmm. Educational pluralism is a different structure for public education than what we have currently. Educational pluralism disaggregates the funding, regulating, and operating of schools. So let me give you some examples. The Netherlands funds 36 different kinds of schools on equal footing. We're talking Montessori, Catholic, Jewish Orthodox, socialist schools. 30% of their schools are funded by, are, are, are delivered by, operated by the government. But their children have a choice of the kind of atmosphere in which they're educated. 36 different kinds. This is the same in Alberta, Canada, the same in Australia, the same in France, believe it or not, the same in the UK. In the UK, if you can create enough demand among a certain group of parents for a new kind of school, whether it be a Hindu school or an Islamic boys school or something like that, the central government will pay for 85% of the capital costs and 100% of the operating costs. Now they're inspected and so forth, but they're allowed to differentiate in meaningful ways. So my contention is that that structure is more flexible, it comports with democratic principles, it allows compromises, and it doesn't fundamentally pit one kind of school against another. When you look at our policy debates, it's quite striking that whether we're looking at charter schools or voucher programs, the burden is to, different, to prove superiority over the district schools. We have superior test scores. We have better college enrollment. 
If you're in a pluralistic society, a pluralistic school system, that kind of uh, negativity is not necessary. We're looking at individual schools. Thank you. So this brings us to a helpful additional angle to understanding what you just said about educational pluralism, and that is contrasting American education mm -hmm. with that of other countries. We're very familiar in our policy arena here in Texas of contrasting Texas education with that of other states. But one of the arguments that you come back to again and again in your book very effectively is that part of our paradigm shift needs to be examining, analyzing American schools with other countries' education systems. I think it'd be helpful for our audience to hear you explain why that's so important. Mm -hmm. So uh, in several ways, and I'll just start with the structural, and then we can talk about the content, which I think is the curriculum, which I think is also very important. And my institute does a lot of work around the academic curriculum as well. But it's important for us to understand that we didn't always have a district school system. And for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to contrast it with pluralism by calling it a uniform school system. Uniform school system is actually written into many of our state constitutions. And this idea evolved and developed in the mid and late 19th century. To and Let me give some context. We, like most democracies, used to fund at the local level and the state level different kinds of schools. We used to fund Catholic schools, Congregationalist schools, Lutheran schools, sometimes non-sectarian common schools, and in some parts of New York City, Jewish schools as well. And this was par for the course in Europe as it is still today. In the, 19th, uh, in the 1830s, Horace Mann, who was the first Secretary of Education in Massachusetts, started talking about a common school in which everyone would have the same education that would be non-sectarian, not differentiated by religious belief. This idea did not strike most Americans very well seem to fly in the face of religious liberty and local control and so on. So this idea of one school didn't have any traction until the middle of the 19th century when millions of Catholic immigrants came to this country. And in some of the cities, particularly in the Northeast, the Catholics began to almost become a majority. They were used to having Catholic funding, uh, state funding for their schools, and in fact, they had it. The Protestant majority in this country was suspicious of the capacity, to say the least, of suspicious of the capacity of Catholics to become true democratic citizens. So we saw from the mid-19th to the end, actually to the First World War, a nativist movement that was anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, and that pushed for uniform schools in the state legislatures and even in the U.S. Congress. Um, so I think that's, that's an, an important factor to remember. This is why we are different from most democracies. Other democracies simultaneously went in the opposite direction. The Netherlands also had a very diverse uh, population in the 19th century, increasingly diverse. They had a disestablished church, just as we did, and yet they moved across the 19th century towards pluralism. Thank you. A couple of follow-up questions, if you don't mind. One of the obstacles that we encounter in Texas, and, and in fact, most education freedom proponents encounter in other states is the Blaine Amendment, yes. which 
is varied depending upon the state. And in your book, you mention, and, and I certainly share that opinion, unfortunately, it's an unfortunate reality that we're not going to see the Blaine Amendments go anywhere anytime soon. We don't necessarily need to get into the legal side of that. You've spoken very eloquently about the historical background of that. My question for you is sort of one of implementation. How do we work with the need for educational pluralism, what we might at the foundation call education freedom, mm -hmm. and pierce that veil, pun intended, of the Blaine Amendment? So the Blaine Amendments are, uh, most state many state constitutions have a Blaine Amendment which prevents state funding to religious schools by which was meant Catholic schools when they were passed. Uh, the American uniform school system was de facto Protestant until 1960, uh, with the Protestant Bible being read and so forth. Um, in any case, the Blaine Amendment uh, was a, uh, Senator Blaine from Maine was a presidential candidate and in the 1870s tried to have a, an amendment passed to the U.S. Constitution that would forbid religious fund, state funding for religious schools. It failed in Congress but became part of some 30 uh, constitutions and, at the state level. How do we pierce that? So uh, technically, uh, tax credits don't ever fly in the face of Blaine amendments because according to the U.S. Supreme Court, a ta tax credit funding never goes into the state coffers. And so it doesn't abrogate the uh, requirement that state funding not go to religious schools. So tax credits are, are one fashion. E ESAs, I think, have not been challenged yet uh, at the Supreme Court level. But there are some indications that the Blaine Amendments may be challenged by the Supreme Court. There are certainly, the Institute for Justice is working hard to, to have this come up before the Supreme Court, and, and that's a, it's an open question. Sure, no, thanks for that response. Ed. Our sense here at the foundation is, regardless of the religious background, although it's, it's troublesome, to, especially for those of us who are Catholics, that the last remaining acceptable discrimination in the country, that if we're going to look at this purely from the standpoint of education freedom, you have to get rid of the Blaine Amendments, because that is one of the major obstacles to true education freedom, or as you say, educational pluralism. Second follow-up question to this thread is, what other countries would you highlight, two or three for our audience, that have adopted educational pluralism, and in particular where you would say as an educator yourself that the results have proven that that approach works? Mm -hmm. So first of all, as a researcher, I could never say that educational pluralism will inherently lead to excellent academic results. Those of us in schools know how complicated schools are and school systems. But we can certainly say that pluralism doesn't diminish academic results. Most of the high quality, most of the highest achieving uh, countries in the world on the PISA exam are pluralistic. And what come to my mind, uh, the Netherlands is certainly the freest country in the in the world in terms of of education, and they do very well on international results. Australia has moved much farther in that direction by the federal government supporting essentially providing vouchers uh, provincial to provincial education for low-income students to attend independent schools. One country that has always intrigued me is Canada. As you know, their provinces are very different and in terms of their educational systems are very different. 
But Alberta, Canada, in the 18 in the 1980s and 90s, had what what I could call I would call a grand bargain, in which they worked with teacher unions and conservatives and and were able to craft a a a, a package over time that expanded school choice. So whereas initially the government funded Catholic and Protestant and Jewish schools, it now funds homeschooling, Inuit schooling, um, evangelical schools, and so forth. That was the one plank. The second plank was they redesigned their school funding mechanisms to be less contingent upon property values. And number three, they put in place a high quality curriculum. Whereas before this reform, progressive education had become the norm in Alberta and only two subjects were required for high school graduation. <laughs> so Alberta is now one of the highest performing uh, provinces in, in, in the world. Thank you. Start a new thread here. One of the wonderful attributes of your book is that it's non-ideological. You, you even convey that early in the book and in particular the reason that's helpful is because someone who may be right of center or left of center or something else, if that's possible, I think could read your book and see the careful research, very careful analysis, measured rhetoric. So the flourishes are, are literary, they're, they're just beautiful language, and appreciate what you're saying as something that they must consider. So to, to make a headline out of that, whether someone's liberal or conservative, they ought to read your book. With, with that in mind, what would folks on the right and on the left express as concerns about educational pluralism? Good question. So I think, I think all of us should be concerned about social cohesion. I think from what I've heard from folks on both the left and the right is, well, are, is opening up the floodgates to different kinds of schools going to invite division and radicalism, and what kinds of schools should we fund, what's the limit, and so on. So I think having a conversation about what the limits of funding should be is very important. I think the social cohesion question is vital as actually one of the justifications for public education, whether it's delivered uniformly or pluralistically, is are we preparing citizens? And so talking that through and thinking through the data that does suggest that pluralism doesn't disadvantage civic preparation, in fact it can enhance it under certain circumstances, is one very important uh, consideration. I think on the right we also have the concern of government encroachment into school cultures. So the concern would be, for example, if the government funds tax credits and then regulates the schools, is that going to diminish the uniqueness of that school? And there I think we do have to be careful. Regulations, uh, in general, I'm a, I'm a big fan of accountability. When I look at the pluralistic school systems, they do have to have inspections by the state. They do have to take pretty rigorous exams and so forth. I'm not, I don't think we should be afraid of accountability. However, there are some cases in which the state has intruded upon the culture of a school. Famous case in Quebec, the Loyola school case, the government of Quebec 
funds different kinds of schools. All the schools have to take the same academic curriculum. They can deliver the curricular information in accordance with their own ethos, which is very important. Uh, about 10 years ago, the government reversed its policy, forced the schools, Catholic, Jewish, and Protestant, to teach a very secular version of religious and ethics education. And it became a, a massive lawsuit. It, it would not allow differentiation. And the Canadian Supreme Court upheld the schools. So we do have to be mindful of that. I think those the social cohesion and the government intrusion issues are, are the biggest concerns, certainly, that I hear. Uh, I think it's well said and, and concerns that we share as well. So in that same vein, from the standpoint of being a social scientist, if you will, mm -hmm. you also do a good job of trying to analyze the problems that educational pluralism solves in other countries, would solve in the United States if it were implemented more fully, and also potential problems it might create. Mm -hmm. Speak to that. Okay. So I think that for me, one of the most appealing elements of pluralism is it's simply more intellectually honest. Yeah. One of the pretenses of a uniform school system has become that it is somehow neutral. And I, I think it, it, those of us who've been in schools know there's no such thing as neutrality with a, an, an institution such as a school. Every element of a school informs students about the world. Even if we don't talk about God, for example, we're teaching children something. We're teaching them that those conversations shouldn't happen in public or that they're not worthy of our consideration. So being able to step back and say, intentionally or not, schools are meaning-making institutions. What do we do with that? We fund different kinds of schools. So that's, I think, one of the benefits. I think another benefit to pluralism is that it does enable us to stop some of the negative rhetoric about entire school sectors. I asked one of my friends who is a researcher in, in the UK, he works at the equivalent of the Institute for Education Sciences. I asked him if he'd ever been asked to compare the outcomes of Jewish schools, Catholic schools, and state-run state schools in terms of academics. He'd never been asked that question. They don't compare in that way, which I think is quite healthy. So there are, and I think the, the, the results from pluralism are potentially much, high, much greater when we're talking about academic and civic outcomes. Again, it depends on a lot of factors, and we can talk about that if you, if, if you want to, but, but it's, not, it's not a given, but it certainly makes it more likely that students will have access to strong curricula and strong school cultures. The negative, I don't know if I would say negative aspects, but the, the areas that we have to be mindful of with pluralism are what are the limits of funded schools? It's quite easy if you only fund one kind of school. Once you open the possibility of, of funding all different kinds of schools that reflect the commitments of your population, you have to ask, what are the limits? What do we not fund? And here I think we do have some guidance from our federal laws and state laws. Racial discrimination is off the table. It's even private schools that receive no funding are not allowed legally, have no legal protection, let me be clear, have no legal protection if they have race-based policies. Sedition 
is not an option. A school cannot, uh, many, many times we have conservative policymakers who are afraid of funding plur of a pluralistic structure because it might fund jihadi schools, for example. Well, no, it, it, they, it wouldn't and it couldn't. But there are, are gray areas that we would have to work through. And that's, uh, I think that's, that's something we'd have to be realistic about. Sure, and I think one of the aspects of working through those gray areas is making sure that our discourse on this issue, our, our conversations on this issue are civil. And the irony is that one of the reasons we can't be civil is because our education system has failed us in cultivating in us a sense of civility even when we disagree with others. And I think that's all the more reason to be pushing for this innovation for, for educational pluralism. So that reminds me of being a do tank and taking these great philosophies, the sort of intellectual foundation of what we do, and thinking about implementation, particularly the state level. And we've seen in many states, you write about Florida and about Louisiana, introducing more educational pluralism. We haven't quite seen that in Texas. And so I'm curious what a, someone who lives outside Texas but is very familiar with Texas might suggest are the reasons we haven't seen that and might suggest to the largest state-based think tank in the country what we can do differently to ensure that educational pluralism does happen in Texas. So I think, uh, again, this idea of a grand bargain makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense to me. Like what happened in Illinois? What happened okay. in Illinois last month, they were able to sign a very well-funded tax credit plan because they coupled it with a massive infusion of public dollars, in particular for Chicago. And one of the, the things that's so tough about political compromise is it is a compromise. Almost everyone interviewed after that was passed said, we don't like everything in it, but it's good for the, for the students. So I think the extent to which Texas can talk about those things together is probably, probably healthy. Texas does have a very good reputation with its charter sector, which was redesigned in 2013, as you all know, and has strong outcomes. I will say that Texas is already doing a lot of really wonderful, Texas must be doing a lot of wonderful work because when we look at the NAEP scores, the National Educational uh, Assessment for Educational Progress, Texas is right in the middle when we look at the raw scores. But when we adjust for demographics and the kinds of students who are served in Texas's schools, Texas is number three in the country. So that's also, and that, that is an assessment of private and public school students. So Texas is a very strong state. I know there are quite a few districts that are doing innovative things. Granger Independent School District, for example, had the courage to put the OECD test for schools in all of its uh, secondary schools. And that, that took a lot of courage, and it's a way to benchmark against international norms. Thank you for that, uh, particularly the, the well-deserved praise that many Texas school districts deserve for achieving educational excellence, regardless of demographic background. And as a historian, including of Texas, I would say that that's one of the things that is beautiful about the Texas ideal, that it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. We have, we, all Texans, 
have the sense that everyone can achieve. It's the Texas dream, it's the American dream, and that's all the more reason that it's so disappointing to see fewer and fewer schools, even in Texas, teaching that. And I think that's one of the lessons in, from the curriculum standpoint mm -hmm. that we can learn from your book. We'll get to curriculum in a minute, but let's, let's bring in the elephant in the room, which would be the federal government's involvement in education. <laughs> what is the proper role of the federal government in education? I may have some disagreement with some of you in this room. I, I do believe that the federal government has an appropriate role to superintend the funds that it sends to states to ensure that they are actually working for the, the children that they're designed to help. So the title programs are are very important. And I haven't looked at Texas's ESA, ESSA plan. I know it was submitted quite recently, but very, very few of the state plans so far actually indicate how the state is going to help low-income students in particular and the different subgroups in particular. The federal government can incentivize innovation. For example, Title I-F of the ESSA plan allows districts, tell me if there are any in Texas that would be interested, allows districts to use their federal, state, and local funds to create a per capita funding model. It's a three-year pilot they can sign with the federal government. And as we know, the federal funds for Title, Title I have to follow low-income students wherever they go to school. Many people don't realize this, that there is an actual Office of Non-Public Education in the Department of Education. And that's another area in which the recent federal legislation helps non-public schools with the creation of the ombudsman in every state education agency, which they're supposed to create to ensure equitable services and so forth. So no, I don't think the federal government will or ever, ever should or ever will control education. That wouldn't be a helpful thing for a democracy, but it certainly can play a role. Mm -hmm. Good job of avoiding the problem of inciting a riot. <laughs> so maybe we'll have one of those in Q&A. Let's talk in our, our waning minutes before we pitch to the audience for additional questions a little bit about curriculum. One of the aspects of your book, one of the arguments you make that I really appreciate being a liberal arts guy, is that you argue that if we implement educational pluralism, mm -hmm. that there becomes a fairer market for the most proven approach to education, which is liberal arts, at least for some period of time in a child's education. In other words, liberal arts curricula have been pushed out by a well-intentioned but still unproven approach to making education, the purpose of education, being training of workers, which is a really bad utilitarian approach to education. So speak a little bit about the liberal arts assumption that I'm making in that question, but secondly, what you're seeing at the Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy regarding curricular trends. As I said at the very beginning, there are two factors that seem to matter most for student achievement. The first is a strong school culture, and the second is a high-quality academic curriculum. This, again, is a story, when you look at it historically, it's a story of loss, in the late 19th century, as more and more students began to attend school and then secondary school, the norm 
was for teachers to be trained in academic content and classroom management and for school students to be exposed to the rigors of academic life in all different subjects. The progressive education movement, uh, which swamped the schools of education in the early 20th century, argued strenuously against the liberal arts curriculum as inappropriate, that education should be about skills, not academic content. And in fact, we still see this. The Common Core State Standards, which Again, I may differ from some of you in this room. I do support standards, uh, whether they are the Common Core or a state derivative. That's not remotely a curriculum. It's not about academic content, particularly in English language arts. It's about skills, finding the main idea, and so forth, critical thinking. And is my colleague David Steiner, who's the director of our institute, is very fond of saying, try to think critically about nothing in particular. It <laughs> cannot be done. And the, the, un the, unfortunate, the unfortunate factor fact is that low-income and first-generation families, in particular children, need access to content. What happened with the Egyptians? What happened with the Romans? What was it like? Can you speak a foreign language? What, what was the Civil War about? What were the two sides arguing about? All of these things. An academic curriculum is required, and we know for increasingly from research that knowledge sticks to knowledge, as it were. The more students have knowledge of specific subjects, the more they can learn. This is Edie Hirsch's theory that's been backed up again and again by research. So at our institute, we actually have quite a focus on curriculum because we think it's something that every school can be mindful of. Whatever kind of, of school, whether district or charter or private, it's also an area in which other countries have us licked. So if you lived in Finland or the UK or France or Canada, some of the provinces of Canada, you couldn't graduate from high school without really knowing something in particular. And how, uh, that's, that's one reason why educational outcomes are stronger around, around the world. The other factor locally, it, locally, domestically, is that curriculum is one of the most cost-effective ways to improve student learning. If you look at all the different interventions that we try in schools, smaller class size, uh, higher teach, more teacher pay and so forth, they pale in comparison to implementing a high quality curriculum. The good news is there are now organizations that are talking about this and that are advancing our knowledge of what makes a good curriculum and what doesn't. And there are some states that are implementing these policies and we work with quite a few of those states. Louisiana, for example. Louisiana has made it, made the, the most compelling academic choice, the easy choice, by the way they've managed their procurement structures. They now have 80% of their districts and they work with charters and private schools as well. 80% now teaching Eureka Math, which is one of the highest, uh, highest caliber curricula in the country. Thank you, that's an excellent segue into our time for questions from the audience. So those of you who are regular attendees of events at TPPF may know what we now call the Roberts Rule of Questions. Please phrase your comment 
in the form of a short question. Yes, sir. Microphone's coming to you, so please wait for that. Go ahead. So uh, one of the excuses that I often hear for why we can't have pluralistic funding uh, has to do with special education, that special needs children and, and students, that all has to be done through a government school and so much funding is needed that if you allowed choice, all of that funding would go away and we would no longer be able to fund all of the special needs education that we need. So how, how do we respond to that? We respond to that by looking at places like Florida where they have remarkable choice for students in special needs situations. The parents are overwhelmingly happy and it, it's more cost effective. I think the per capita funding is is exactly the way to go with that. That when you when you have a pluralistic system, and this is how other countries do it, they have a per capita in in Sweden, for example. Sometimes there are block grants, and sometimes there is per capita funding, and there is an extra add-on for students who have special needs, students who are learning the language, students who are very very high poverty. Thanks for that question and and for the wonderful response. Yes, sir. Well, Dr. Berner, I haven't read your book yet, but I definitely intend to. But my question has to do with how does, uh, I, I know you, I believe you're primarily focused on, on primary and secondary education, yet in America today, there appears to be this trend to where if you're 18 to 24 years old and you're not in college or community college and something's wrong, you know, what, what's going on? And, and so, you know, when I was a much younger man, we had the concept of, uh, I think it was K through 12. Well, now it's K through 16, and we spend more money on, on, on higher education than any other country in the world, and yet we still have, there's only so many white collar jobs. And so I guess my question is, is with this trend to where everybody should be either in college or community college, that has to have an effect on, on primary and secondary education, as opposed to other countries where it's just assumed, I think in Germany at age 14, that you're going to either go on a college route or a trade or technical route. So how does pluralism affect the fact that we just automatically in America today think everybody should go to college or somehow something's wrong? It's a wonderful question. We, we talk a lot about this at our institute, actually. Uh, there are two, two parts to, to my response. The first is that the structure of pluralism may not get exactly at college and career preparation in the sense you're talking about, but it certainly should make space for it. So one of the provocative things about other countries is they provide a high quality, Germany for example, or Switzerland, provide a high quality academic education, K through 16 or K through 14 as the case may be, so that everyone has a high standard of literacy or, or could, and then differentiate by an academic track or a career and technical track or you know vocational and so forth which is it has a lot of potential and there are quite a few states that are looking at that model that apprenticeship model i think it's a good one the problem with our assumption as you said that everyone needs to go to college is when we look at the numbers particularly low-income students may enroll in college, but their completion rates are sometimes in some community colleges lower than 10%. This is very sad. 
And this does affect and engages the lack of quality and academic rigor in K through 12 because these students are underprepared and also the thought that they all need to go to college. I, I agree with you. I think that's a conversation worth having. And, and no doubt thinking about those single digit completion rates, not only at community colleges, but an increasing number of four year colleges, think about that and the expense of those being greased by the perverse incentive of federal student loans and grants but that might incite a riot. So we will take a question. Yes, sir. Microphones en route. I'm wondering how to balance the uh, dual objectives of having diversity and yet having quality. It seems to me that one of the challenges is to, to say if we're gonna let each school do whatever it wants to, uh, that has some risk uh, as well. And I'm wondering how you manage that. I don't like, for example, our current core curriculum but it's partly because I think some of it's stupid, okay? Uh, the way they do math, for example, in elementary school is really nonsense, and then the kids don't know how to, to handle it when they get to algebra. But I think that uh, uh, it's really tricky, and when it comes to being prescriptive, particularly in the liberal arts, it's, it, it, it's much easier, therefore, to be very politicized, too, and so I'm trying to, I'm very much in favor of what you're recommending, but I'm trying to figure out as a sort of a pragmatic level how you resolve some of these tensions because I think ultimately we want to have high quality and we want to have variety and, and diversity and uh, I'm not quite sure how you can, can manage those together. It's mm -hmm. a very good question and again I think this is a question worth asking again and again. How do we create diversity at the same time advancing quality? So hitherto in this country if we're talking about high quality academics, it was simply more likely to happen in the private sector, but it's not guaranteed to happen in the private sector. We all know there's a lot of variety in the Catholic sector, in the evangelical Protestant sector. There are classical Protestant schools, and there are also Protestant schools that actually really don't, don't care so much about academics. So how do we manage that? And here I can only look around the world and say, that having a certain academic bar is, is at least necessary. So having to take a nationally normed test, for example. I think transparency is another very important factor. So in the UK, every school, no matter what type of school, has to be upfront about the curriculum that it uses. It has to be on the website. And this is something that parents could become more savvy about. And again, we have now habituated our families not to ask those questions because we've had the assigned district school. Part of empowering parents is helping them ask the right questions. What are you teaching our children? Are you giving teachers the very best tools? This is, is an issue for all of us, I think, as parents. Yes, sir. Wait for the microphone, even though I know, Dr. Dean Waldman, that your voice can reach the stage. I will try. Uh-oh. The long oh, set going to speak loud. No. Uh, there we go. Uh, hi, and thank you for interesting answers as well as questions. Uh, there is an issue for me that is uh, both uh, intellectual and extremely emotional, and it has to do with the lack of pluralistic, or if you will, pluralism in thinking on college campuses, specifically 
the issue, I mean, a lot of people around this room, at least the TPPF, are going to start nodding their heads with, and, and my alma mater, uh, Yale, is probably the prime example of politically correct thinking rather than free, pluralistic, say what you think or mean as opposed to say what is proper. My question is, can we do something to reverse that trend? And if that the answer is yes, should it start much lower down than colleges? I have a daughter at Yale and a daughter at Hopkins, so I, I share your concerns. Intellectual diversity is the diversity that we don't talk enough about. And back to K through 12 for a moment. Political science, David Campbell in particular, who's at Notre Dame, has done studies on the value of debate in classrooms. It's, it has an outsized impact on voter behavior and civic participation. So how do we create the conditions under which we encourage diverse viewpoints? I think that is, it's K through 12, it's simply a matter of teacher preparation and of principal leadership, of have, allowing, helping teachers support that kind of debate. Higher education's a bit of a different animal. I think boards of trustees certainly play a role. Some college presidents are beginning to stand up and say we, we support intellectual diversity. There is, perhaps you're familiar with the case of the Hastings versus the Christian Law Society out in California, it, in which if, if a, it concerned the all-comers policy on college campuses. So if you have a student, student activity fund, for example, you, of course, the Supreme Court has said you can't discriminate against certain groups, which is Rosenberg versus Virginia. Fair enough. Now we're going farther and saying that there, uh, a, a membership organization has to accept anyone who wants to join and who wants to hold office in that institution, in that club. This, I think, is exactly gets to what you're saying. It's problematic because civil society is premised on our being different and being able to assert our differences and differentiate in, in meaningful ways. The Supreme Court jurisprudence has said this as well. So that's a long-winded way to say I don't know the answer to your question. <laughs> I think it's probably, in higher ed, it's probably on the Board of Trustees. Time for two more questions. Yes, sir. I wonder if you could address both with your with your opinion about what we should do in the United States and also with what other countries do in dealing with mediocrity and failing schools, number one, and within those mediocre and failing teachers, uh, it, you know, being in the private world, we've been living for 15, 20 years now with people being fired, with companies shrinking, with uh, a measure of performance and uh, uh, effectiveness based compensation and survival of survival of companies and employees. And we don't have a similar thing in the education world, or at least it's much less. And I wonder, should what should we do differently in the United States and what have other countries done? Good question, and I'll, I'll take those separately, first on schools and second on teachers. So other countries, most OECD countries have school inspections. 
And the school inspections, I think, have potentially great appeal in this country because they're not simply looking at a test score. They are highly trained professionals who go into the schools, sit in on classrooms all day, interview people, do surveys of parents, look at the curriculum, look at the instruction and the test scores. And two countries in particular, the UK and the Netherlands, have consequences for those inspections. They will defund, in the case of the Netherlands, they will defund a school that is persistently failing. It doesn't matter what kind of school it is. They, the, the inspections are public documents. They're put up on the websites. In the UK, your inspection report, you're expected as a principal to have a conversation with your community about what's happened and if there are, are interventions that need to happen. The school, the, the inspection, Ofsted it's called, Ofsted will come back repeatedly to make sure you're actually doing it. So I think inspections are very provocative. Um, and I, I would recommend that approach here in the United States. Teachers are more, are, it's, a, it's a more complicated issue in the United States because our teacher preparation programs are focused on, they're not focused on the two things that matter the most, I think, which is academic content and classroom management. It's ironic, 100 years ago to become a teacher in this country, you had to know two things. You had to know your academic content in and out, every subject, since you were in a one-room one room schoolhouse, and you had to know classroom management. And most teachers are not given those capacities now. And, and, and in, many, in many places, as you know, the tenure, the tenure guarantees lifetime uh, employment. So I think we have to push back against that. The lifetime guarantee of employment, I think, is, but we also have to prepare our teachers in a better, a, a more professional fashion. Uh, there are wonderful, there are signs of improvement in some states and some school sectors, but it's not, that's a much more difficult systemic problem, I think. I'll underscore one thing and do this briefly because we'll take one more question and it's controversial to say, so I'll say it. The, in most states, in order to be a certified teacher, one need only 12 hours in the academic content area to teach. It's not an anti-teacher comment. It's a pro-teacher comment. One of the most important things that could happen, so those of you who are policymakers and working for statewide elected officials and legislative offices, I'd encourage you strongly to think about this, is requiring doubling or tripling the number of hours and content areas that our teachers have. And I would submit to you, coming from our think tank perspective, that academic achievement in Texas would go up. May I just add something sure. to that, which is about Massachusetts. When Massachusetts signed a massive education reform act in the 1990s, they put in place a rigorous curricular standards that started with, with what you would have to know when you entered freshman year of college and back mapped all the way. So there were curricular standards that were content specific. And they also changed their teacher certification process such that, that teachers had to pass rigorous content exams and they made their professional development for years had to be content focused. This is a one reason why Massachusetts is the highest performing state in our country. Thank you. It can be done. Last question. Yes, sir. 
Dr. Berner, this is great. I appreciate the conversation. This makes for some interesting allies in the room. Um, but so my question goes back to social cohesion. When we look at schools and we have a really good mix of students, we get a lot of really great outcomes. But, in, but increasingly, our cities are more segregated. And as a result, being somebody that's been an administrator for a decade now in public education, we have educators that come to the classroom that don't understand their students because they haven't ever interacted with that, that student because of, again, increasing segregation that we have. So when we have these pluralis pluralistic solutions, how do we, or maybe looking at what other countries have done, how do we ensure that we just don't end up with a greater degree of segregation within our cities based on that solution? Good question. The achievement gaps that exist in this country between the achievement gaps at the highest and lowest level, the most significant is between high and low income students. It's n racial achievement gaps have been narrowing, but the, 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 the one we have to worry the most about is that between high income or moderately inco moderate income and low income children. And so this is one of the unintentional negative consequences of neighborhood assigned schools that you have children who are all from one kind of background in the school. So when you look at it in that way, pluralism actually makes integration more possible. The Catholic schools in some urban centers are the most economically and racially integrated schools that exist in the country. As for policies that could actually enhance racial and socioeconomic integration, there's a, an entire movement in the charter world to create integrated charter schools that are in, that intentionally skew their lotteries to ensure a mix of students so that the peer effect is upwards instead of downwards. Uh, other countries have, some countries have policies about English language learners, for example. They, they new, new students who are new language learners are, they, I think in the Netherlands, it's not more than 20% in one classroom, just to ensure that there is a, a good mix. So you can, you can put policies in place. I think it's important. And I think, I think certainly a pluralistic system. We all know there are private Christian schools that are very intentional about socioeconomic composition of their students and so forth. And I think the more we can talk about that, and set local and state policies that advance that, it's, it's important. Thanks for that question. And thank you all for your questions, for your attendance here today. You know that your presence here and input, regardless of your point of view, all of that is very important to us and the work that we do at the foundation. We have some time once we conclude our session here in the theater for you to visit with Dr. Berner. I encourage you, and I mean this genuinely, having recently finished the book to acquire a copy, get it signed, and as you now discovered from the wonderful responses and comments of our guest, Dr. Berner knows a lot about education and has a, a very eloquent way of encouraging us to take action. So thanks for being here, Dr. Berner, from all of us at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks again for being part of the Foundation Podcast, which is sponsored and produced by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Visit us at texaspolicy.com to learn more.